2016. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Russell Ray, who is Assistant Professor of Neuroscience at the McNair Medical Institute at the Baylor College of Medicine. Hi, Russell. Hello. Uh, his lab uses a dizzying array of technologies, genetic technologies and others, to map origins, diversity, circuit, and spatial organization and function of neurons in the brainstem. Um, around the room, we've got Gary Galfo. Hello. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi, as usual. Um, so, I, so, so much of your novel, of the novelty of your work, arises from ingenuity and the use of all these great new genetic tools. Um, in your lab, you routinely use intersectional genetics, and I think it was—it's your paper that coined that phrase, right? No, no, no. Was no. It? <clears throat> uh, yeah. I think the greatest amount of credit goes to my postdoctoral advisor, Susan Demeke. So, well, you're on, you're on one of the big seminal papers that uses that phrase. Is that right? Even, Doesn't matter. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it, it, it was a well-established technique um, uh, even before I joined the lab, and was one of the reasons why I wanted to go to Susan's lab. Um, and I really liked the way she had uh, been able to leverage the use of these two recombinases to subdivide neural systems, but um, it's something that, like every other scientific idea, had been out there in the air for a long time, and people were going after it in a multitude of different ways, but, you know, the elegance in what Susan was able to do was, and to use this approach and why we continue with it, is that it enables you to address uh, both populations, so, you, you know, you, you have this subtractive population, which is your, your primary overarching population, and then you pick a subtype out of that. Uh, by another marker, and if you build the mouse right, you can actually concurrently examine both populations in the same mouse, whether it's histologically or even functionally. Um, and that's why I think uh, this is becoming an increasingly prevalent technology. And if you look at, for example, in Jackson Labs, <clears throat> there's more and more intersectional alleles that are coming available out of some of them out of Allen Brain Institute and some of them out of uh, Genalia becoming, I think, very powerful public resources, and it's great that everyone gets access to them. I, you know, have to say, you know, in all honesty, I was just lucky enough to be trained in, in her laboratory and, and to adopt this into my own work. So you, you make all your own models, mouse models, is that right? Do you want to talk about some of these, some of these, the various... Because there's, you know, there's dreads, there's CRISPR, there's um, yeah. you know, all these editing <clears throat> techniques. And, oh, yeah, sure. and, and then let's talk about your model, which is the okay. CRAD model. I mean, so tool and technology development is certainly a pillar of my laboratory. And that wasn't um, as much thrown out there you know, in the talk today, but um, more just how we use those things. But being a postdoc and so, you know, going from being a postdoc and, and, and just getting a pot of money where you can just kind of unrestricted do all the carry out all these ideas in your head you kind of really just take off with that and I was really fortunate to be parked at Baylor where they actually have pretty good core facilities at good pricing that allow me to make mouse lines um, for for relatively low cost and so with that I had a lot of lines in my head that I wanted to make so we could just you know take off on that and I think in three years we've got about 15 mouse lines that have gone germline, 
and I don't know how many, you know, probably another 10 or 15 that are just as ESLs in the freezers that we're just waiting to bring forward as we need them. And the reason why we have that configuration is one, space limitations, we need to do our experiments. And the other is that we've really worked hard on tweaking the efficiency of um, embryonic stem cell recombination and how we can build targeting vectors more efficiently in a simpler fashion so that we can <clears throat> do this in a, in a parallel fashion and then get them into ESLs in a parallel fashion. That then just gives us a library of ESLs that we can go back to and inject. And this was really before CRISPR and Cas9. It was, it was out there, but it wasn't entirely clear how efficient it was going to be. And we have adopted a number of... Uh, CRISPR tech or the CRISPR technology to just use a generalization in our targeting approaches in ESLs, and we have tried those in parallel uh, in pronuclear injection. And I just think, unfortunately, for us, pronuclear injection and targeting that way for large constructs using the Cas9 system hasn't been as reproducible as we would hope. So, what we can do to make gains in the efficiency of producing novel mouse lines is especially when we're targeting a singular locus like ROSA26, which is used time and time again to target transgenes and conditional alleles. And so what we did is we re-engineered the ROSA locus especially so that, one, the targeting vector itself is reduced in, a, uh, in size and complexity, so this increased the stability uh, when trying to grow and work with the, with the targeting vector. So we brought the arms down to less than a kb on either the side, the, the, the homology arms. For targeting, um, uh, could you step back just sure. a little bit and explain what some of those things mean? Like so, targeting vector, yeah, homology <clears throat> arms. So, <laughs> the traditional way to make a, a a transgenic, transgenically targeted mouse line was to take your genomic locus of interest on a, on a plasmid and and grow that up in a bacteria. And then through various in vitro methods, cut the DNA using restriction enzymes and add or subtract pieces of DNA as needed, including your uh, selection schema, which would be using something like neomycin, to select for ESLs uh, that take up your DNA. And you can, neo in the simplest fashion could also be used to disrupt your gene of interest. Um, <clears throat> and what determined how well your so you have you have this targeting vector where you have a copy of the of the locus on a plasmid you've disrupted it by adding a selection cassette um, <clears throat> and then to either side of the selection cassette there's a certain amount of genomic DNA and that's your that's your targeting arms or your homology arms because those DNA sequences are the ones that once you reintroduce them back into the ESLs are going to guide that piece of DNA that you've taken out of the plasmid and put into the ESLs to its chromosomal locus where homologous recombination can happen on either side of your selection cassette and integrate that into the chromosome. So it doesn't just get stuck in the <clears throat> Yeah, which it does anyway, but um, that's where you get targeting efficiency. So, so that's, very, that's when you have the, the, the selection markers. Yeah, well, the selection marker ins ensures that you have DNA in the cell uh, and that it's active, but it can, it can either go to, it, to the locus to its endogenous locus and recombine in, or it can land elsewhere topically in any other locus in the genome. 
both cases, you'll get selection. The cell will survive because they both carry the neomycin cassette. There's other tricks where you can put a death gene on the end of the homologous DNA um, <clears throat> so that if it recombines, the death gene is eliminated, but if it just jumps in transgenically into a random locus, it usually, not always, but usually incorporates that death gene, so then the cell will die there. Right? And this is the brilliance. So this was the, the first targeting papers were, were Thomas and Kopecky in 88-89, and then that terminal non-homology using thymidine kinase was actually Susie Mansour, who's a professor at uh, University of Utah and was a student in Mario's lab. And so her paper was the one that really introduced the terminal death genes. So um, how do you reduce the homology arms at the same time as adding all these death programs? So we got rid of the death programs, oh. <clears throat> uh, and some people don't use them. It, 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 it increases efficiency, but there's there's caveats to it. If you If you want to really drill down into it, a lot of people use diphtheria toxin as a death gene, uh, and it's really harsh because if that DNA uh, gets into the cell and the death gene is transcribed, even before it has a chance to recombine, you kill the cell before you even had a chance for anything to happen. So this can have other consequences, but it's used, in the practical sense, it's used regularly. So for the rosa locus, what we were dealing with uh, from historical context was a very short arm on one side and a very long arm on the other side. Um, and in the center was a place where you can put all these different unique cassettes, um, either to straight up constitutively trans or, uh, uh, transcribe a gene, or you can make it conditional by adding these stop cassettes that could be then later recombined out by Cree or Flip recombinase. Um, <clears throat> the problem with these targeting this targeting vector that's widespread through the community uh, is that it's very unstable. So. Uh, because the long homology arm is full of repetitive DNA elements. So when you build a targeting vector, you, you certainly want to um, give some consideration to the uh, sequence structure. You want to avoid areas that are of low complexity and uh, high repetitiveness, those kinds of things, um, <clears throat> as well as your gene structure itself. So what we did was we saw in CAS, so Rosa already targets quite efficiently on its own, but what we do is <clears throat> uh, the first thing I did, and this was in Susan's lab because there was major stability issues, whenever we tried to um, build these cassettes, they would recombine in the bacteria because of all these repetitive DNA elements and the high copy number, and it just made it very difficult to even acquire enough DNA to do an electroporation, which is the introduction of the DNA in the cells. Um, and the way, because we were still using a death gene at the time, what we would have to do is make the vector in two steps. First, you would make your cassette, whatever it was going to be, and then you would test that cassette in cell culture and make sure it did everything you wanted, either recombine or produce the protein of interest. And then you would take that cassette and you would put it down into the Rosa uh, homology arms with the death gene. And you had to do this separate. You couldn't just make your cassette, put it in the Rosa homology arms, because if you transfected the ROSA vector with the death gene, your cell culture would just die, right? So every time you try to move that cassette over, the ROSA targeting vector would destabilize. So the first thing I did was just move it to a lower copy um, backbone, and that stabilized it quite a bit. <clears throat> but we ran into a problem. We, we, we built this mouse um, that has a lot of repetitive elements into it. So the idea was to build a mouse that could be used for fate mapping, but could give you a lot more information about the neuron population you're trying to look at. So the typical fate mapping allele 
is either Cree and or FLIP activated, and it, that expresses a cDNA, which is usually GFP. So what we made, but when you're trying to just look at GFP cells, you can only see so much, right? You can see the outline of this, you can see the shape of the cell, and if it has extensive projections, <clears throat> sometimes you can you can be confused and think, is that you do a DAPI stain, right, to highlight the nuclei, and you're like, well, is that is that one of my cells, or is that another cell with just a lot of, you know, axons, axons wrapped around it? And this is a problem because you know, there's some hypotheses about brainstem development that might be significant in terms of congenital diseases that could really um, hinge upon the number of neurons that are produced. So you want to be able to make a clear count. So what we did is we made, instead of just expressing GFP, we made a trisostronic uh, cDNA. So we put GFP in there in the, so that GFP is made from this mRNA. We followed it by a P2A skip motif from a virus, which allows the ribosome to skip and start a new peptide. And we follow that then with an H2B BFP fusion. So we're still marking our cells blue like DAPI, but now it's only in the cells we would target. So we can fill the cell with GFP. Yeah, H2B is a, a histone. Histone. That's thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that goes to the nucleus, integrates in the chromatin. Actually gives you two things. It gives you a nice marker, and you can use it for pulling down without having to sort cells. <clears throat> um, and then we followed that by another P2A motif with TD tomato uh, fused to synaptophysin. Synaptophysin is a presynaptic marker. So once this allele is triggered, it should... Uh, Turn the entire cell green, all your synaptic contacts are red, and the nucleus is blue, and you have just this, you know, there you go. So the problem in making this, so uh, this is actually not a bad story to tell on this kind of a podcast, because this was my first student's rotation project, right? And she started in my lab before we I even had a lab. Like, so um, like literally, we walked down and kind of said, all right, you guys are done working. We need to get to work or when they're trying to just clean stuff up. And she helped me finish cleaning up the lab, unpack boxes. She's, uh, her name is Jenny. And uh, <clears throat> so I said, here's this project I want you to do. And so everyone who comes who rotates through my lab, the idea is make a mouse so that if you don't stay in my lab, you can at least be attached to the mouse and get your name on a paper. That helps you out. If you stay in the lab, that will probably contribute to your future project. And we just like to make mice. So this is, she was the first thing, that was my ideal. And so far it's worked out, but uh, we have three students who are each making mice now. But um, I said, this is your rotation project. And so she fought this mouse. We've had the lab open three years now, and it's just now going, being bred to go germline because we had so many troubles along the way. In the interim, we've made a ton of mice. So it's that, that we can't make mice. It's that this mouse taught us how to optimize every step uh, along the way. And one of the big problems was that we still had this, we were still running back into this instability. So when we would take, um, so even though the, the targeting arms had been moved into a low copy vector that stabilized everything, in most cases, uh, first we had a, when we tried to move the vector over, it all became very unstable again. So we're right back to square one. And it was unstable because actually building the intersectional cassette that gave us this great trisostronic cDNA was <clears throat> um, in itself very difficult because it's, it's quite repetitive. 
First, we wanted to optimize the stop cassettes that we use in the conditional fashion. So the typical intersectional conditional allele is a CAG promoter that now is, will ultimately be parked in front of the ROSA promoter. You follow that by a stop cassette, and there's a variety of stop cassettes out there that people have utilized, and some of them are leaky. And so if you're expressing a neurotoxin, you don't want leakiness, right? Can you say, what is leakiness? Leakiness means that the, um, the promoter machinery, the trans uh, transcriptional machinery sitting on the promoter, instead of terminating at that stop cassette and, and uh, pr producing a truncated mRNA, will actually read through it into your cDNA. So stop didn't stop. Like uh, red lights around here. Yeah. <clears throat> so, if it's if it's GFP and it reads through, you know, once or twice, you know, every couple months or something, or once or twice even in a day, that's not going to produce even enough GFP to see under a sensitive scope, right? It's not. It doesn't matter. The cell will still remain unmarked. If you're producing tetanus toxin line chain and you read one mRNA through. Uh, given that prior experiments have suggested via via micro or dial dialysis via um, micropipette into a cell that you need ten molecules of tetanus toxin light chain to inhibit fifty percent of synaptic transmission, one mRNA can wreak havoc in a cell. So you want these stops to be super tight. Um, <clears throat> and people have taken various approaches, and there's anecdotal uh, stories out there. But this works best. This works that. So works better and whatever. And I think right now, uh, in my opinion, and it's based on, again, anecdotal evidence, I would say flex cassettes are actually some of the tightest out there. Uh, and I can explain that later, but it's more used in a viral context. But coming back to the stop cassettes, what we had in this case, we used this one called PBS302, which seemed to be the most potent stop cassette that we had with the least amount of leakiness. And we need two of these stop cassettes for the intersectional approach that Susan had developed, right? So we just duplicate. Instead of using two different ones, we just duplicated that stop cassette. The problem is it increases the repetitiveness of the cassette. So we have two LOX P sites that match each other. We have two stop cassettes that match each other, two FRT sites that match each other. Then we put into that the cDNA, which has two P2A motifs that match each other, and then TD Tomato is a dimer, so that matches each other. So it had a lot of just, like, double sequences in it. And so when we tried to bring this back into Rosa, it just destabilized it entirely. We fought with this for months and months and months, and then finally said, let's just try a Cas9 approach. <clears throat> so we cut the arms down uh, and got rid of all the repetitive DNA in the uh, Rosa targeting homology arms and made them smaller so they're just easier to use. And also, CRISPR-Cas9 limits to how much homology you can have in order for that system to work, right? I don't know if it limits. I don't know if anyone's really shown that there's, as compared, like if you took a really big targeting vector that normally targeted already, and then you took a, um, uh, and then tried to add Cas9 on top of that, I think it would still target, at least in ESLs. Um, what it does is it makes it easier for you to, you don't need as much. So, <clears throat> uh, one other, just as an example of that, one other locus that we targeted not to create a conditional allele, but to create one of the flipper Cree drivers that we use to trigger the conditional allele is the DBH locus. Um, and what we did there uh, was to, 
I mean, so this this uh, DB the DBH gene has been targeted multiple times over, and we just wanted to 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 get the same mouse so that we could do our experiments. Uh, so we just copied the targeting vector from um, from the very original targeting from Richard Palmiter's lab, uh, and he just he was just knocking out the gene and just destroying its function. We wanted to insert flip recombinase. So in Palmiter's lab, his homology arms are quite long. And he got about 8% efficiency uh, by targeting that without any, you know, this was many, many years ago before anyone could conceive of Cas9 in this way. So we used Cas9, but then we could get away with one KB homology arms. And even though the homology arms were shorter, because we had the Cas9 system to it to cut the chromosome, we could match his efficiency even though we had shorter arms. Now, based on the early, early work in Mario Capecchi's lab from uh, Thing. I did these very these very early uh, experiments. Susha Deng. Deng, yeah, Deng. So, um, did all these really nice experiments looking at the the effect of the homology length on gene targeting for the and the effect of the non-homology, i.e., how big, you, how much in the middle was not uh, matched to your chromosome. And his his experiment showed that uh, the amount of internal homology didn't you know up to a his testing limit, which I think was 14 kb, uh, he could target with the equivalent efficiency um, 1 to 14 kb of non-homology inside your targeting vector. To the same, that that was the same as long as the arms were the same. But the shorter his arms got, uh, the less efficient it became. So based on those papers, we would have predicted without Cas9 that our targeting vector probably just wouldn't work. But with um, by adding Cas9, we could use a much simplified vector. I mean, and, and and target with the same efficiency as a vector that would have taken you know several weeks. Mm-hmm. But we just made it in a in a day or two. So we ordered the primers. So we PCR one K just use mouse genomic DNA from one of our mice in the colony, and so we just PCR a kilobase of homology on one side, PCR a kilobase of homology on the other side, PCR the components of our uh, targeting cassette our flip recombinase and our neoselection cassette, and then just put them together in a test tube to do a Gibson reaction, um, <clears throat> which is just a new way of, uh, it's called isothermic cloning. It just allows you to join pieces of DNA quite efficiently and in a very ordered fashion. And what you get out of that is you put five pieces in, and you get out a nice circular plasmid that transforms. Sequence it, and you're good to go. So it, it makes... Makes so now that you can do this, you can make your targeting vectors without having to screen a library or go into a back or anything like that. It makes it very fast. And then, so back to the Rosa story is what we had to do to to stabilize everything is we had to bring the arms way down, Um, and then we could put our cassette in. But in bringing the arms down, I just I thought this thing works so well, we didn't need the uh, death gene on there, so we got rid of the death gene. And then from that, actually, we we're, we're getting ready to dump this into adgene, but we've created a whole host of t- Rosa targeting vectors that are very modular. So they already have all the intersectional cassettes in, and very in different and many different kinds of intersectional cassettes. So basically, you can just take one of our vectors, cut it open, drop a PCR product in, and you're ready to go make a mouse. So that's a good segue. The, the intersectional, uh, you know. How you use this system? So, when you were in uh, Susan Daimeki's um, <coughs> laboratory, you found that uh, um, the serotonergic neurons in the brainstem 
are important in respiratory uh, control as well, as well as controlling body temperature, right? So that was a pretty cool study. But then when, when you left the laboratory, uh, someone took over the project, yeah. and I believe using a specific uh, pre-driver that was restricted to one rhombomere, I believe rhombomeres two and three, with Hox A2. It's actually two. <laughs> Two rhombomeres. Rhombomeres three and five. Th- three, they're fine by EGR2. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, I thought it was Hox A2. Or... Well, anyway, so she, using one Cree driver, she found that she can um, replicate the effect, suggesting that uh, perhaps one or two rhombomeres contributed to the effects of um, uh, silencing or inhibiting <clears throat> all of the serotonergic population. Mm-hmm. So the question is, you know, if it's that one population, um, it seems to be that population, the more rostral um, serotonergic uh, neuronal subtypes, those are rostrally projecting. Mm -hmm. So do you know or can you use this system using transsynaptic, you know, um, uh, expression, Mm -hmm. right, Uh, to to identify the the population of neurons that that... um, group projects to to control this behavior. Does, does that control which behavior? Um, well, controlling mm-hmm. uh, respiratory uh, function and um, well, so body temperature. The, so, so the cell reports that you... you yeah, the cell, so in the cell reports paper, what, Ra- what Rachel had done taking off of this uh, earlier work <clears throat> was both to, to map these at the electrophysiological level using uh, slice physiology and the intersectional uh, reporter so she could just, you know record off of a green neuron and record off of a red neuron, test their response to CO2, and then begin mapping it that way. So that, that added a nice layer to the functional data, and then marching through rhombomere by rhombomere, which you could show is, okay, the intersection with um, rhombomere 1 doesn't give a phenotype, the intersection with rhombomere 2 doesn't give a phenotype, and so on. And then you get down to rhombomere 3 and 5, flanking rhombomere 4, which doesn't give rise to serotonergic neurons. Um, but because of the way she could cut her slices and everything and localize the ele- electrophysiologically those neurons, she could be more confident that the population derived from rhombomere 5 um, is likely the functional population rather than those derived from rhombomere 4. So, which, which means that it's the... Uh, or, the, sorry, rhombomere 3. So, which means that since uh, rhombomere 4 is devoid of serotonergic neurons, those that are, that are born anterior to that are the rostrally projecting... And then the more uh, uh, posterior, dorsally projecting. So this to suggests the problem is because you're capturing those populations concurrently in every experiment, unless there's a way to separate them, which you can't anatomically because of their general fates do still follow the mm-hmm. old <clears throat> kind of stripe pattern. Uh, you can you can gain a certain appreciation that this these ones up here are wrong number three, and these ones are down here wrong number five. But to be most definitive, if you wanted to say do projection mapping just through histology and just and, and make a cut and say, okay, well, here's some red fibers and here's some green fibers, unless you do retrograde studies, um, unless you're concurrently doing retrograde uh, highlights to that, you couldn't tell at that point whether or not those are rhombomere three and five. Mm-hmm. But the preponderance of the data is with the with the electrophysiology and the, and the mapping that it's the rhombomere five. Population mm-hmm. So suggesting that it's the descending pathway that's critical in, in regulating these behaviors. But also you can uh, use, I mean, there are other... Local, I wouldn't call them descending, but I would yeah, call it local. Right. What's that? Gary, really he's really pushing this ascending <laughs> rostral. Or, or descending. Well, you can 
because there's so many cool drivers that he's using that, uh, um, that you can really dissect it out because we know the patterns of... But I think the question... But I don't know. It sounds to me, and I obviously don't understand yeah. everything you're saying, but it sounds like the fundamental question is what does it... What does rhombomeric origin actually mean? You're defining it to mean that, you know, one, from this rhombomere up, things are going to head up always. And that, I mean, what, what does it actually mean? But why is this? Right. It's answerable. I mean, I mean uh, Patricia Jensen answered that in, somewhat in the DBH paper because she did a, a layer on top of her rhombomeric fate maps. I mean, she has no, no uh, functional data, but on her... On the rhombomeric fate map, she was able to use retrograde labeling to, to layer on that and to coordinate, you know, which rhombomeric descendants may go to ascend and which ones may descend. Um, and that is a convenient um, division that's based on a very traditional anatomical perspective. But, you know, Katie Commons has shown that um, in, in working with Susan and others that the serotonergic neurons themselves interproject. So what do you call that? Do you call that an ascending or a descending, or do you call that a local projection? And I think the vast majority of what we're looking at uh, are local projections. So, you know, the, <clears throat> what, is, what is the projection of those serotonergic, or in our, our case, the noradrenergic populations, also from R3 and 5, that we find that are also important in respiration? And that's one thing we're trying to, to, to answer. Um, and at best, what you can do now is simply by color differentiation, map and see where the, where, the, where the fibers go to, but whether there's active signaling at those points where you presume contact and, and, and that's germane to your function, still you have to employ additional methods to answer that question. And of course, many of those fibers are going to continue on and may have additional roles that are potentially coordinated by not only, say, uh, you know, innervating the pre-Botzinger, but now going down and innervating various intercostal motor neuron poles or something like that. So I think that all just remains to be resolved. So I'd like to ask a more general kind of question. Yeah. Um, the norepinephrine neurons, which belong to numerous cell groups, <clears throat> and the serotonin neurons that are in different anatomical nuclei, are often spoken about as if they were, they all had something in common other than norepinephrine, that they should be functionally similar. Nobody ever says the glutamatergic system of the brain. They never yeah. say that. They never say the GABAergic system of the brain. But they say cholinergic system of the brain, dopamine system of the brain. So is, is it a mistake to talk about the serotonergic system of the brain the same way it would be a mistake to talk about the GABAergic system of the brain? Or is, does this collection of nuclei that all have serotonin neurons in it be, uh, have something functionally in common? that makes them serotonin different from GABA. So in this election year, can I give you a political end? Sure, yeah. Yes that. and no. <laughs> I mean, so Dahlstrom and Fuchs defined, based on inherent fluorescence through some you know nice microscopy methods, these, these neural systems because of the inherent fluorescence that you could get out of... Um, out of uh, dopamine and serotonin, the cyclic structures and everything. And that has just set the stage for how these neurons are referred to, right? So I think that kind of gets, that gives you a little bit of a historical perspective as why they call it these systems. And, you know, what was apparent was, yes, you have, you have a system, you have, and it's not all clustered in one place, they're spread throughout the brainstem, and they send out these projections. And 
I think, you know, in my experience, just anecdotally talking to some of the uh, more senior scientists that have been instrumental in, in defining the development and function of the serotonergic system, is that for a long time it was just generally thought that this serotonergic system and why they would call it a system was just kind of like a fire hose system. It was just all these, you know, fire, these projections were just going out and through volume transmission, just dumping out serotonin and not playing you know, a specific role. It was just either increasing or decreasing gain in other signaling pathways, right? And I think that's what, that, that has been a long-held uh, historical view of these uh, systems. And I think, you know, particularly Susan's work and why, uh, why it was uh, such, a, such an important step forward was to show that at least in the, in the early fate maps, uh, mapping studies, and now in her functional studies, that this system is very heterogeneous. So you can't really call it a system in so far as to think and imply through that that these neurons are all just doing the same thing, or they all just have a basal component to them, which is just to neuromodulate and, and increase and decrease gain. Uh, but rather that uh, there is distinctions in this system that are at the molecular level, the developmental level, the genetic level, and the functional level. And really, we're just trying to coordinate those distinctions with each other. Now, as an evolutionary biologist um, and, and a developmental geneticist, I can step back and say, of course it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a diverse system, and it's not homogenous. I mean, you have function upon function over historic, over evolutionary time, layered onto these neurons, right? I mean, when you look at the evolution of the nervous system, <clears throat> you know, especially in in um, in jawed vertebrates, right? As you're starting to elaborate many of the mid and forebrain structures, you still have the hindbrain. You have these, uh, you know, before these other structures that become increasingly elaborate, you still have these neuromodulatory systems, and they're they're not they're helping you do a math problem. They're not helping their, you, they're helping you, or helping, you know, this, this primitive fish uh, necessarily remember anything. They're there helping that fish, you know, keep moving its opercula and pushing water over its gills, you know, uh, making sure that its heart is beating and, and managing all these basic autonomic functions that are keeping the animal alive. And interestingly, while we add and expand new compartments to our brain, and we add new neuron types there, additional neuron types there, we weren't adding new serotonergic neurons to the neocortex or anything like that. Instead, we recruited those neurons through projections to play a functional role in those, you know, more recently evolved or evolutionarily elaborated compartments of the CNS. So it's hard to imagine, at least from my evolutionary perspective, that these neurons would maintain any, you know, maybe if in a primitive fish they were homogeneous, which I would doubt there as well, based on how we see physiological function being parceled. I would not expect, when looking at, at all these other different new, in terms of evolution perspective again, projections that are, that are um, taken on by these neuromodulatory systems, that they're just going to be in some sort of homogeneous fashion. So I would think that from my perspective, there was always, you should, it should have always have been, I mean, it's easy for me to say, a perspective of compartmental, or not necessarily compartmentalization, but diversification within those neurons. Um, 
<coughs> mean that neurons within the same serotonergic system? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I think what he was saying was different nuclei actually have different functions, and it just happens that their neurons use serotonin as their transmitter. Well, no, I mean, the... Well, the idea is that even then, that's, that's again, going back to just the, the, the first fate maps to kind of break up the serotonergic system. It was really thought if there was any specialization, it was going to be in those nuclei. This nuclei did one thing, and this nuclei did another thing. But really, the, what, what Susan has shown, well, first through her fate maps to suggest so, and shown now functionally, is that these, neuro, these nuclei are very heterogeneous in and of themselves, and they can serve multiple functions, and that a single function can be spread out over multiple populations. So what is, why do you have then this, you know, consistent reproducible anatomical structure? What does that play? It certainly is not, based on current evidence, the underlying principle to the functional organization of these systems and, the, and their diversification. So what's important is where the, what Ramamir the cell was, was formed in, not what nucleus it ends up in, right? Yeah, or you, they're linked. I mean, because it seems like on the fate maps, a cell from this rhombomere is almost always going to this this nucleus or this set of nuclei. But it seems so. That's that's the hypothesis that that uh, many of us work work from. And this idea is that these early, excuse me, embryonic patterning <clears throat> uh, uh, gene expression profiles that correlate to rhombomeres are setting in play. Um, neuron identities that ultimately themselves could define functional modules. But I, I would say that has limited resolution because there's a lot of evidence, you know, you know well before any of these studies, that the, even the rhombomeres themselves are, are are quite heterogeneous, you know. And, of course, you would think that because they have borders and they have a center. So already there, you would have potentially two different domains. You have a border domain and a center domain. And when you look at even vascularization of the hindbrain, <clears throat> the vasculature invades the hindbrain in the center. It stays away from the borders. And, and you know, people like Shield 14 have shown that if you just in recombination experiments, even if you just turn a rhombomere around, you know, it will completely change the patterning motif and everything like that. So it seems like in a given rhombomere, there's an anterior-posterior uh, patterning system there. So what was interesting in some of, in the Cell Reports paper is that the concordance between red and green and chemosensitivity isn't 100%. So clearly there are subpopulations even within the rhombomere that are I think are ultimately going to be seen to be important. <clears throat> so you spoke about like uh, how you, like, evolution and development. So it's interesting that uh, um, what, what is your much anyone on the table that for example, serotonergic neurons, dopaminergic neurons, uh, facial motor neurons, all these things that you, you refer to as controlling basal function, right, are all born from a common domain, a common progenitor. Evolutionarily speaking? Uh, developmentally, right. So serotonergic neurons arise from the same domain that will give rise to these motor neurons that control uh, autonomic functions, dopaminergic neurons <clears throat> formed from these, those same domains. A little bit different time point, but they're arising from a common domain. So is, do you think that there's um, some inherent advantage to that? Well, I mean, what, what I find curious is that 
much like you can have a master gene to make an eye, right? Mm-hmm. And you can take that gene back and forth between mouse and fly, and it still it still works in both. And I don't know if that's a good analogy for what I'm thinking, but it's clear that there are a set of genes in the brainstem that are very important in setting up specific or circuits that are specific to dis- to to function to distinct to functions. I mean, I think MATH1 and atonal and some of the work by Huda Zogby really implicates atonal as being a potentially some sort of, uh, if not master regulatory, key regulatory gene in, in developing the circuits that are going to maintain autonomic function and homeostasis. And I don't think you can just simply say, oh, it's breathing versus heart rate or anything, because these are so such inter- integrated functions and they depend so much on each, on each other that they never exist as a in and of themselves. I mean, for example, with breathing, you know, if you just simply change blood pressure and the diameter of the, of the, of the vessels in the vascular bed, you will change the rate of diffusion of CO2 out of your blood, and that, of course, can affect the chemosensory response. So these are intri- intrinsically linked, and that's been known for a long time. All of your autonomic functions are intrinsically linked at the circuit level to maintain your homeostatic state. So... Um, it wouldn't surprise me then if that there were some master regulatory genes that uh, play a role in the development of many of the different neurons in these circuits, whether or not they're neuromodulatory or they're motor neurons. And I think FOX2B and FOX2A are great examples of that because they they spin up motor neurons, they get downregulated to give rise to serotonergic neurons, and they're also highly expressed in upregulated noradrenergic neurons. And those are three parts of, of, uh, of the circuitry that's important in regulating many autonomic functions right there. And they're involved in the development of many other neuron types in there as well. And if I, you know, if you want to talk about evolutionarily elaboration, how this might have come out, I couldn't say how that came out, but I, if I had to guess at the genetic pathways that were uh, mutated and changed to enable, for example, to go from uh, aqueous environment up onto land and to start breathing, I would I would actually look at FOX2B and FOX2A um, because I would guess, based on everything we see and their functions in humans and what we see in the mouse, that this was probably a prime target um, for, uh, <clears throat> for elaboration or for, uh, of the neural circuits in the brainstem that would allow animals to better uh, manage breathing dry air. Thank you so much for being with us, Russell Ray, the Neuroscientist Talk Show.